So far this Advent season, we've been looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke and the events surrounding the birth and beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. And in the stories in Luke, as we, if we were to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and begin reading through the stories, they're, they're nice, right? You have uh, angels arriving and, and sharing exciting news, and you have uh, expecting, expecting first-time mothers. That's always an exciting time for, for mothers who, who are uh, having a baby for the first time. And you have songs of praise and, and blessing and promises of peace on earth and goodwill will toward men. It's, it's all the warm fuzzies of Christmas, isn't it? We love Luke's, Luke's gospel chapters one through two, but, but then we come to chapter three and something happens. John, the one that we've been hearing about for so long, well, he opens his mouth <laughs> and he begins to talk. This, this little baby that is now a grown man, well, he has something to say. And we're going to take a look at what John has to say here in Luke chapter 3. So if you have a guest Bible, we will be on page 823. I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 and concluding in verse 14. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, what should we do? And John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt, corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? And he replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Now back in chapter 1, the angel that appeared to Zechariah in the temple proclaimed, and this was the first occurrence of the expression in the Gospel of Luke, good news. The angel came and said, I have good news. And yet, we get to chapter 3, and you start to see the, 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 the working out of the, the angel's message to Zechariah, and the working out and the introduction of that good news. And well, I, would, I think you would agree with me that the news of coming wrath doesn't exactly come across as particularly good. But the Bible doesn't view God's wrath as in any way incompatible with divine goodness. On the contrary, you could argue that God, the, 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 the fact that God is wrathful towards sin and evil and wickedness and darkness, you could say that actually reinforces God's goodness. Truth, by nature, is always intolerant of error. Love, of indifference and hate. Good, of evil. What fellowship does light have with darkness? You, you probably heard, I'm sure you've heard, you've heard me say this before, and you may remember, you may not, but I've always appreciated um, the late biblical scholar John Stott's definition of God's wrath. He defines it as this. It is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. A God who stands by and, and does nothing in response to genuine injustice, genuine suffering, genuine wickedness cannot be considered righteous, good, or kind. But it just so happens that God is those things. He is righteous. He is good. He is kind. He's all those things and more. He is also merciful. And that is a really key concept to zero in on as we come to a passage that, that, that hurts our ears and hurts our hearts and hurts our, our fragile sense of our conscious, our, our awareness of things. We need to remember that God's warning is out of his mercy. The warnings of coming wrath and judgment in the New Testament, even right here in these first painful words of John, are, believe it or not, loving and merciful. 
Because God desires to warn people not to destroy them, but in order to spare them. As you recall from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, for God does not any, want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone, everywhere, in all times to repent. And that's the thing that I want to zero in on here in John's message. John's message was a message of warning and repentance, and that's what I want to, to take a few minutes to explore here. Last week, we briefly mentioned uh, repentance there towards the end of the message. If you were here or if you tuned in online and caught that message, it comes from the Greek word metanoia, which, which literally means to change one's mind. But it's more than just sort of rethinking about something. It combines, yes, rational decision. You choose to think differently about something, but it also involves willful action. It is, as I was talking about last week, it's as if you're moving this direction and then you repent in turn and go the opposite direction. What was John calling his audience here in this passage here to repent or to turn from? Well, you could say, well, their sins, and you'd be right. He does talk about turning from their sins, that's, that's, of course, but more specifically, more specifically, he refers to turning from any false lines of salvation. It's not just sin in general, sin in the abstract, of course we, we turn from the, but too often, that's the sum total of our turning from sin. We turn from the idea of sin, but I don't turn from the actual sin in my life. I like the, I like the notion of repentance. I like the notion of forgiveness. Yeah, I'm, I generally agree with the badness of, of me, but when it comes down to the actual thing in my life, that's where we start to have issues. And, and John says, yes, turn from your sins, but here's specifically what you need to turn from. And it is this expectation that just because they are descendants of Abraham, that they will somehow be spared of God's wrath to come. They are viewing their ancestry as the line of salvation for them. This is what saves me just because I was born into a, an, a, an Israelite family. We're safe. We'll be spared because we have the right genealogy. To which John replies, and I will say, I don't think anyone in here can really fully appreciate the, the shock and awe of this response from John that, that they would have felt in that time. Not, I don't think there's a single one of us in here, present company included, that can fully imagine what it would have been like to be those people at that time with that particular understanding of the world and God and the scriptures and salvation, what it meant for them to hear John say this when he says, that means nothing. You're counting on your ancestry to save you, and I tell you right here, in, the, in this river, it's not going to cut it. It's not enough. That thing which you think has you covered, that thing you think which is providing for you, that thing that you are banking on to protect you, that thing to get you in is not going to do it. And that's true of any false line of salvation for all peoples in all times. What are some of the ones common among people of our day? As you're thinking about people and the way they live, live their lives and the things they believe in and what they turn to when, when faced with the prospect of a coming judgment or, or wrath of, of, of whatever higher power is out there, what is the thing that people bank on, look to for their protection or their salvation? Well, I'm a good person. People genuinely think that they're good enough. That if they could just, if they're, the good things they do could just outweigh the bad things they do, then they should be fine. You might remember the, uh, the, the homeless um, pigeon lady from Home Alone 2. Sorry, I'm on like, I'm on like Christmas movie overload right now because <clears throat> we have a, a list on our, on, uh, my wife and I have this list of all of our favorite Christmas movies, and, and we, there's like little um, boxes that we, we literally check the box. We've watched it, and you know, we, we have to squeeze them all in, and we even had to start early this year. I used to have this like hard and fast rule. We will not watch any Christmas movies or listen to any Christmas music until the last piece of turkey has been stuffed down my throat. And then, and only then, will we start to watch or listen to anything Christmassy. But this year, we had to start early. Because the, the list of, of, of things just gets bigger every year. But in any case, I'm on Christmas movie overload and I'm thinking about Home Alone 2. And the, the homeless, you know, Home Alone 2 is like a carbon copy of Home Alone 1. It's just in a different place. 
And in the first movie, it's sort of the old neighbor guy with the shovel that Kevin connects with. And now it's the pigeon lady with, you know, the birds everywhere that he connects with. And the pigeon lady says something in the movie that is supposed to be insightful and supposed to be profound. And, it's, and I think it resonates with a lot of people. But as a Christian who has received the truth of God's word about the real situation as it is, I recoil and cringe when I hear it. And she says this, this intimate moment where they're, they're having this conversation. And she says, do you know that a good deed actually cancels out a bad deed? Think about it. Is that, is that our hope? That in the great cosmic calculus, all the bad things I have done are on one column and all the good things I am doing are on another column. And if I can just do enough of those good things, if I can just get enough of these check marks, it'll cancel out all the bad things. And hopefully at the end, I come out on top. People actually, maybe they will never admit it, but I think a lot of people actually live that way in practice. I think it underestimates the, the seriousness of the sin condition of, of the human nature and it overestimates the power of us to do good works. It's not a fair scale. Because as, as Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 64, we are, we are so tainted, so corrupted by the presence of sin at the level of our nature, not just in our actions, but at the very core of our being. We are so broken fundamentally that even our very most righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. To, to view life under that calculus is to diminish the beauty and the majesty and the purity in the perfection of God. I'm just a good person. I'm not perfect, but I can do enough good things to make it in. Well, our very best, the scriptures say, will always fall short. How about a loving God would never send someone to hell? We take part of the scripture's truth but we take it out of context. We don't take, we don't take the, the other dimensions of the character and the nature of God and we, we wrongfully divide the word of truth. I can pick and choose the things I like, the things that I agree with, the things that make me feel safe and we just kind of dismiss the rest. Oh, loving God wouldn't do that. That writer must have been mistaken or that was for a different group of people. Or how about I was raised in church. I think a lot of people who were brought up in the church, they have baseline beliefs. They have sort of a foundation level of understanding of things. They're not living their lives for the Lord. They're, they're counting on some sort of past experience or past profession, past whatever. Yeah, I, was, I, I had it right then. I went to church. I was in the choir. I said the words. I did the things. And yeah, I may be, you know, living in sin now, but I'm, I'm coasting on, on past whatever. I think a lot of people who will be in hell would tell you right now today, I believe in God. And they mean it. They genuinely believe in God. I had a conversation the other day with a, with a gentleman on the phone who doesn't go here. You don't know him, so don't ask. I wouldn't tell you anyway. <laughs> And uh, I was trying to gauge, so he was asking me questions and showing interest in various things. And we were talking and I was trying to, to, to probe and kind of get beneath the surface. What, what really makes this person tick? What's, you know, what is believed and cherished and, and you know, what exists at the, the heart level of this person? And, and I kept hearing a lot of generic God language. But I had to challenge him. I said, there is a, friend, there is a vast difference between some generic belief in a God figure, you know, some sort of deity, some sort of divine something or someone, there's a vast dif difference between that and Christian faith in Jesus Christ. You go out on the street and talk to just about anybody, and I guarantee you the vast majority of people say, yes, I believe in God. But if, 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 if you or they think for one second that generic belief in the, the divine in general is somehow equivalent to putting your faith 
and your trust and your life in the hands of the person, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, who alone died to atone for sins, and who alone is the, the right line of salvation. If you think some of those are the same, then you do not understand the Bible for a second. And John comes to shake people out of these false ideas. They're, they're illusions. They're wrong expectations. They're, they're false lines of salvation. What, what we get the language from, from Isaiah chapter 40 back in the passage from last week. These crooked paths. None of these things can save. And God, because he's merciful, is not content to abandon humanity to its delusions. John's message at Christmas I've never preached a John the Baptist series at Christmas time because we don't like John the Baptist, do we? John the Baptist has nothing to say that makes us feel warm and fuzzy and tingly and oh, happy. John says all the hard things. And his message is not the heartwarming, touchy feely, warm, fuzzy thing. No, it is the Word of God that cuts through our, our, our excuses and it confronts our delusions. It's the bad news, good news. Because it hits us like a Someone coming into the bathroom with a cup of ice water and dumping it over the shower curtain when you're taking the hot shower. It, it hits us and it's this shock to the system. It's, it's like an, an, it's an affront to our sensibilities. It's a slap in the face. But not one that is intended to harm. It's not a prank. It's not a joke. It's not meant to hurt. It's meant to save. It's a warning to people who are asleep in their sin. And in their delusions, John's coming onto the scene. He says, wake up. God's axe is lying at the root. It's right there. Meaning it's, it's about to strike. And he's coming to chop the lifeless vines so he can gather them up and toss them into the fire. Feel warm and fuzzy this morning? You and I might not be first century Jewish people finding false comfort in our ancestry, but listen, the word of God is timeless. And it's speaking today to anyone who slumbers in their sin. To anyone who rests in the shade of their own self-deception. To anyone who blindly follows the world flesh or the devil down crooked paths that promise to save but never can. I think one of the most common ways that people misunderstand repentance, and that's not just people in the world, I think even good Bible-believing godly Christians, what, the most common way we misunderstand repentance is to view it as merely a feeling of remorse for something. But that's not even close to what John's talking about here. Imagine you get in your car after church today and you start driving north up 17 on your way to Chesapeake. And you get up there, uh, you know, you pass the Walmart, you know, on the right, um, Grassfield, is that right? Grassfield, I, I'm still learning where the next street to my house is, let alone, I've been here almost a decade and I still don't know where these places are. But uh, Cedar Road, you know, is where the, the Sonic is and, and then you get to that new bridge they built, finally. Thank you, Lord, it took them forever. I got, I got tired of doing the little two-lane road over the drawbridge on the side. But imagine you get to the bridge, and as you're driving up, you know, however many feet off the river bottom, or river, the top of the river it is, you get to the top and you realize suddenly that something broke and the, the bridge fell apart and there's, there's no, it doesn't go across. Now let me ask you something. If that is you and you get to that point, does feeling bad about the decisions that got you there in any way save you from plummeting into the river? I want to hear, no, Pastor Sean. Loosen up out there. No. Just feeling bad does nothing. You can feel genuinely bad. You can have real, deep, heartfelt remorse 
regret. Why did I do this? I will never do it again. Friends, it's not enough to feel bad. You have to do something. Feelings don't save anybody. Unfortunately, hell will be full of people with kind thoughts and good intentions. And John says, hey, thanks for coming out, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for responding to my call to repentance. Thank you for stepping into the waters with me and, and, and going under and coming back, symbolizing your decision to turn from your sins and turn to God. Thank you for what you intend to be, intend to confess here. But then he says in verse 8, you have to go and prove it by the way you live. Not my words. His words. He's not saying, okay, go now and go back into the world and now do all the things that you need to do to earn God's forgiveness. Well, that's never the message of the Bible. And if you thought that the Old Testament, it's all salvation by works, you misunderstand the Old Testament. God didn't have to give Israel a sacrificial system. It was all by grace. And those that brought their sacrifices, they did so in faith. It is always grace by faith that saves. It's never by works. There's no Israelite that got from God's word, I am, my righteousness is good enough for Yahweh. That's the whole point of the sacrificial system. Your righteousness is not good enough. Your, your sinfulness has to be placed on someone else because what you rightly deserve, you, it will kill you, it will destroy you. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? I'll take your sins. You can't bear it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do but put your faith in me. So John's not saying, go and do all the good stuff and then God will forgive you. Then God will, you know, then you will have earned it somehow. That's not what John's saying. What John is saying is that God is not interested in your lip service. You can say anything all day long. And a lot of good people come to churches and say all the things. But it's not enough. You and I cannot reduce repentance to simply feeling bad and saying, my bad, sorry God. And that's how we live, isn't it? We do the same things over and over and over, knowing full well that they are not right. Knowing full well that they are outside the boundary lines of God's stated will. We do the things over and over again, knowing full well that, that the wages of sin is death. And yet we think somehow, if we can just keep doing the same things, but saying I'm sorry and feeling bad each time, that somehow that's repentance. And John says it's not. It's not just a matter of what we say or what we feel or what, even what we believe. It is also what we do. Man, could you imagine how disappointing Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol would be if Ebenezer Scrooge woke up on Christmas morning and, and just felt really bad but didn't do anything differently? What a joke that story would have been. It wouldn't have lasted, it wouldn't have sold a copy. It wouldn't have three dozen different theatrical versions of it on the movie shelves today. <laughs> like there's still physical movies stores out there with shelves. That's funny. I just dated myself. Blockbuster wouldn't have a Christmas carol if that was the story. Man, I sound old. Gosh. It would be the most disappointing Christmas story ever. That when faced with with a lifetime of, of failure and self-centeredness and corruption and evil and that he was given this last final chance to get things right. If he woke up and said, man, I feel terrible about what a man I've been and then just carried on business as usual. And listen, friends, a lot of people live that way. That's the sum total of their spirituality. I feel really bad, nothing changes. no. Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge was a changed man with changed behavior. And that's why that scene at the end hits so hard. Because for the last few moments, you see what salvation, real salvation, produces in the heart of a broken person. 
There's something to be said about the role of restitution in repentance. I'm not just confessing that I messed up and I blundered, but because I'm now a changed man and I'm genuinely sincere about my remorse and my regret and I'm determined to not do it again, I'm not only going to stop doing the things, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to do what is necessary. Not because doing that earns my forgiveness, but because I've been forgiven. It's in response to the grace that I do anything good. Because look what the good has been done to me. God has done something in me. Oh, how can I not do something for another? And as the people that came to John began to grasp what he's saying, they began asking the right question. Well, what should we do? I mean, we've already come out here, John. We've already followed you into the wilderness. We put our credibility at stake, our reputation at stake. We're now... Guilt by association because those guys over there on the corner are watching what's going on. All those religious leaders, they're there too. They're watching everything. You don't think for a second they weren't taking notes. They've staked everything on coming into the river and expressing their forgiveness and then they, or their, their, their um, remorse and, and asking for forgiveness. And then they hear John say, don't just say it. You gotta, you gotta live it out. You have to do something to prove that what you're, what you're saying here is true. And they rightly said, well, what do we do? If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Stop taking advantage of people. Don't extort. Don't make false accusations. Be content with what you have. In other words, show with how you live the fruit of your repentance. Don't be that lifeless vine. Fruit doesn't come off a lifeless vine. It's dead. And so too is the life of anyone who confesses with their mouth but doesn't let, doesn't let that truth descend to their heart and manifest the fruit of what they say. You have to live it out. Prove. Express it in concrete action. Prove it in genuine reformed behavior. Listen, I know this next statement puts me at odds with not just the world, but with a lot of other churches. And I don't mean to cause conflict, but I want you to hear me. This, is, this might be the most important sentence I utter this morning. And maybe you don't get it. And if you don't get it, I'll, talk, I'll explain it afterwards if I have to. But God is not solely concerned with positional righteousness. He is concerned also with actual righteousness. It's not just who you are in Christ, but also Christ in you. It's not just your position where God looks and he only sees Jesus surrounding you. You're still the same person you were before Jesus, only he just covers you. Is that all he wants? Or does he want not only to cover you, thank you Jesus for being my ark. I come to you, you are my ark. For, I come to you for protection that God does look upon you and not my sinfulness. Thank you for that, Jesus. Positional righteousness is absolutely one of the benefits of coming to him in faith. But it's not all. God wants also, not just for you to come and find shelter in him, he wants to come abide in you. And when he does, he's going to transform you. You're not going to be the same person. You're not going to just be a sinner. That's why I don't ever use that expression, that I'm just a sinner. Because I'm not just a sinner. The Bible doesn't call the church the sinful ones. The Bible calls the church the holy ones. Is it just because of who we are in position to Christ? No, it is yes that, but also Christ in you. The Holy Spirit comes in and he rearranges and he transforms and he regenerates and breathes new life. And he lives the, the life of God in you and through you. And there is fruit to that. Thank you, Craig and Tammy, wherever you ended up. Thank you. That was excellent, by the way. Thank you. Very, very good job. But thank you for so clearly saying that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the second one listed in Galatians. Love, <laughs> it's always the first fruit of God. Joy. Meaning it is what he produces in you and through you. God's not just concerned with positional righteousness, but actual 
righteousness. He wants us to turn. He wants us to change. He wants us to be differently. He wants us to do differently. Dear children, uh, 1 John 3, 18, don't let us merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. There, there it is right there. It's not enough to just say, I love you, brother. John says, well, if you're not meeting that brother's needs, you don't love him at all. You can't just say it. You have to show it. And I think that's what God, through John the Baptist, is trying to get at in these verses here. But it's worth noting. It's really important. This final sort of, if we're doing a three-part sermon, this final part is, is perhaps the most important, and you need to hear it after everything I've said up to this point. It's worth noting that John is only the forerunner. Okay? John is not the Messiah. John is not the Christ. Okay? John's message is not the whole message. Yes, his, his message is, is good news. We know that from the angel speaking to Zechariah. I have good news for you. This is sort of the, the origin story of the good news two weeks ago. Listen to that sermon online if you haven't heard it yet. It's the origin of the good news, but it's not the sum total of the good news. And it's only this message of repentance and showing your sincerity by how you act, it's something expressed in concrete, changed behavior. These, these things that John is saying, they're important and they are good news, but only so far as they prepare us for what is coming next. That's the only reason why John's message could ever be considered good news. Because at the end of the day, the only way to truly and fully turn from some crooked path is to actually turn to the path that is straight. Turn from your sins, he says, and turn to God. In fact, those two things, if we're being honest, are inseparable. You, you cannot do one without doing the other. If you're not turning to God, then you're not turning from your sin. There's no sort of middle ground where I've turned from this bad life and I've turned to something other than God. Well, that's no different than, that's what the crooked path is. You've been turning to anything but God. So to turn from one is to truly turn to the other. The other day, I was, um, I was walking down the hallway and I noticed on the floor one of those little um, skinny black kind of beetle type things. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I know you do because every like November, December, they're everywhere. Everywhere. In fact, those of you who brought coffee in and set it on the ground, Craig, watch your coffee. You may have had one crawling up in your coffee. They're everywhere. There's little shiny black, you know, they're about three quarters of an inch long or so, little beetle bugs, and they're crawling around. They're harmless as far as I know, but they're everywhere. And there was one that had <laughs> made his way somehow onto his back. Now, you know what that means for a little black bug on its back. It's not looking good for little black Johnny down there, is it? His legs are going like this. I mean, he's working hard. There was, it wasn't like he tried for a minute and stopped. No, he was like continuously. I always wonder, like, how did he get there like that in the first place? Do bugs just decide, you know what, it's my time to die. And so they flip over on their back and then it's time to die. I don't know. But somehow he'd gotten on his back. His little legs are going like this. And I walked by and took note and, and I came back and there he was, little Johnny still down there doing this. And then it was like an hour later, I came by and talked to Jeff about something. And sure enough, there's, he's still doing his thing. And I mentioned to Jeff, you know, there's this little guy down here. He's, he's on his back. And we're like, ah, oh, laughing about that. And then a little bit later, I know, I didn't turn him over. I'm sorry, that's the end of the story before. I, I didn't turn him over. I'm sorry. If you're the type that thinks little Johnny's deserve to be saved, I didn't save him. I left him there. And I came back a little bit later, and the legs are still going, but they're like this now. Uh, don't do that. It's a bug. You're like, oh, little Johnny. You're like Sarah McLaughlin singing out there somewhere. And then I forgot about Johnny. And that was what, maybe Thursday, Jeff? Something like that. So yesterday, I'm, I'm in my office and trying to think through, you know, finalize this message. And I started thinking about that little bug again. And I was like, I wonder what, what happened to Johnny. Where do you think I found him? He went in the same place. Somehow he had been, maybe by people walking by, or I don't, he had man managed to work his way over to the corner. But his little legs weren't doing this anymore. Little Johnny, well, Little Johnny met his maker, didn't he? 
and his dead little carcass sat in the corner waiting to be swept up and thrown away. And I thought, that's us. That's, that's every human person in their attempts to be good, to do true justice and righteousness, to save themselves. That's us. That's a snapshot of humankind's ability to save themselves. Friends, you and I, apart from God, are as helpless and lifeless and pathetic and as doomed for destruction as that little black bug on its back. And John's preaching comes to us here on the cusp of Christmas not to encourage us to just quit being bad and start being good. It doesn't come just for us to you know, stimulate us to be determined. This year, you know, this year I'm going to turn the corner. I'm going to get it right this year. His message doesn't come to us and, and say, hey, dig deep inside and find the strength to be the best version of yourself. No, John's preaching, like all the preparatory work of the entire Old Testament, was meant to prepare people for salvation by reminding us that no matter how much we intend to fix things, no matter how much we intend to be better, no matter how much we are determined to do what is right, the problem of sin runs too deep. And you and I cannot fix ourselves. And it is for that reason that we have Christmas at all. It's because you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't outnumber the bad deeds with the good deeds. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that is good news. That is the good news. That's the only news. That's the bad news, good news. Hey, bad news, you can't do it. Oh, but good news, he has done it for you. He's done it for you. Look one more time, look once more with me at verse seven. Look at verse seven again. I heard a chuckle in the room when I read this a moment ago. When I read, you brood of snakes, I'm not going to ask who it was, and you're not in trouble, so take a deep breath. I just noted in my head there was a chuckle, maybe a couple, when I read that. Do you think that what John said there is unintentional? That's the first thing that Luke records John saying, by the way. That's the very first thing out of the mouth of this sweet little baby promised to Zechariah and his, his elderly wife, who could not have children, that, you know, Hey, I got good news for you guys. A baby's coming, and we're so excited. Oh, he's going to tell people how to find salvation. Wonderful. And John shows up, and that's the first words out of his mouth. Do you think that's unintentional? Well, of course it's not. That expression recalls the prophet Isaiah, whose message to God's people 600 years before this moment was essentially the same. Chapter 59. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. Listen to this from chapter 59. It starts there at the beginning in verse 2 with Isaiah saying, your sins have cut you off from God. You have severed that life-giving relationship. But then look at verse 3. Your hands are the hands of murderers and your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies and your mouth spews corruption. No one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and then give birth to sin. Here it is. They hatch deadly snakes and weave spiders' webs. Whoever eats their eggs will die. Whoever cracks them will hatch a viper. So John, with his very intentional first words, and Luke, knowing his Old Testament scriptures, very intentional sharing of these first words out of his mouth, they want you to go to Isaiah 59. They want you there. And here we have this horrible message about the, the condition of God's people. You are evil. You are lost. You're lost in darkness. Look at verse nine. They're halfway down. We look for light, 
but find only darkness. We look for bright skies, but walk in gloom. Verse 10, we grope like the blind along a wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. Even at brightest noontime, we stumble as though it were dark. Among the living, we are like the dead. Sounds a lot like what John is trying to communicate to those people. The condition of of mankind due to sin and separation from God. And so what's God's reaction to that? Well, it says in verse 15, halfway through that verse, the Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. Then, then verse 16, he was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back, to redeem those in Israel who have turned from their sins. Thus says the Lord. That's the the total message from John. It's not just you need to repent. It's not just here's what repentance means. Here's what it looks like. It's not just, boy, you're going to have a hard time actually carrying out the thing that you say you intend to do. It's that God himself will come and do what needs to be done. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Isaiah 59, 20. The Redeemer has come to Jerusalem. Through John, God's word preceded the word. Meeting us in the wilderness of life. Yes, to expose the true reality of our condition, but also to reveal the amazing truth of God's saving action on our behalf. That's the, that's the good news. All the good news together. That Jesus has paid the price for our debts. That Jesus has appeased the wrath of God upon our wickedness. That Jesus has made a way to come back into right relationship with the Father. Jesus isn't just a particular way. He is the way. He is the straight and narrow path that leads to salvation. He is salvation because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father by any other avenue. You cannot come to God in any other way. All those other false lines of salvation are crooked paths leading to destruction. But Jesus is the way. And John came to point us to him. Come to Jesus. He alone, in him alone, are we made righteous, not only by position, but also by the power of his spirit in us, who's working the same power, we're told, by the way, by which Jesus was raised from the dead. That same Holy Spirit is in our lives to not just make us righteous by position, but righteous actually. So that we can do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four. We can actually throw off our sinful nature and former way of life. They're to be discarded like dirty rags. I think my first sermon series ever in this position of this church was, maybe it was my second one, from rags to righteousness. I know not a soul in here remembers it. I barely remember it, but I remember the title because that's what he wants to do, to take our filthy old person that we were and to remove it like a garment, cast those things aside, throw off your old sinful nature and former way of life, letting the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, and then what? Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Truly righteous and holy. And Jesus alone, by the power of his spirit, to the glory of God the Father, makes that happen in your life. Jesus forgives, but he also cleanses. Jesus erases your past, thanks be to God, but he's writing you a brand new future. And yes, Jesus calls us out of the darkness, but he commands the darkness out of us. He is our only hope. He is our only joy. He is our only peace. He is our only life. And the only right response to the word of God, the only right way to begin again, the only way to avoid the coming judgment and wrath of God is to repent of all your sin and turn completely to him. 
My question for you is, will you turn to him this morning in faith? That's what faith is. It's not a hope and a prayer. It's not a wishful thought. It is the act of turning from and turning to and trusting. Trust. I don't understand everything about Jesus. There's a whole lot I still need to learn about Jesus. But from what I know and what I understand, because the Holy Spirit has enabled me in this moment, in this moment, to, to make a choice, I choose him. I choose him. Will you choose him this morning? Not generic belief in a God figure, but will you choose trusting obedience in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Savior and Lord? God never bases his forgiveness on the good things we do, but only ever on the completed and all-sufficient work of his son. But listen, if you have truly turned to him in repentance and faith and in total surrender, what should the fruit of that look like in your life today? Remember, God doesn't care about lip service. Your good intentions or emotions aren't enough. What will it mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you specifically to right now turn from sin and turn to God? Some of you, I'm, I would venture to say in here, have never done it once in your life. And so for you, it might mean at the end of the service, maybe you would respond to an invitation to come and do just that. And I would kneel with you at one of these places of prayer and, and help you do that for the first time in your life. Or maybe you would come to me afterwards and say, I need to talk. I need to learn more about what you're talking about. I need to explore what this, what this does mean. It's, it, you're the one in the, in the river asking John, what do I do? And I will tell you what, what you need to do. But that's not what everyone in here needs to do. What do you need to do to show in your life the fruit of turning from sin and turning to God? For some of you, something in your life needs to go today. Something has to go today. Something for others is missing in your life that needs to be added. What are you not doing that you should be doing? For some of you, you have hurt somebody, you have wronged somebody, you have violated somebody. Who do you need to go make things right with? Again, not to, not to earn God's forgiveness, but in response to his forgiveness. Who have you not loved? Who have you not cared for? Who have you not forgiven? I know I just destroyed someone's toes right there. Oh, it's amazing to me how many Christian people hold unforgiveness in their hearts. And the scriptures could not be more clear. If you hold unforgiveness in your heart, then guess who's holding unforgiveness in his heart towards you? You have to forgive. You have to let it go. If you ever have any hope of God letting go of what you've done, In what ways are you living in direct opposition to the stated, revealed will of God? Man, there are so many people today in churches living in sin with false assurances. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them, friends. The time is short. The axe is poised. It's lying at the root. It's going to strike. It's not a joke. It's not a fake. He's not going, oh. No, he means it. He will, he will, the, the, the acts of God's wrath and judgment on all sin will strike because he's a good God. And you're not guaranteed another second in this life. Don't waste what you have. Repent. Turn from whatever it is and turn to him and and. Carry out what that means for your life today. Listen, Isaiah 59 begins. I didn't read verse one for a reason because I wanted to save it to the end. Listen, he says, listen, which tells me I need to shut up. Okay, what? Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. That is a beautiful promise from God's word. He's ready to reach into your life and do what you can't do for yourself. He's ready and waiting for you to call out to him. Will you call out to him this morning?
Pastor Jeff, please come up, and whoever's helping close in song, and I want to invite all of you to please stand with me. The promise of Isaiah 59 that everyone up to the time of Jesus was hoping for, well, we on this side of history know that he has, he has fulfilled that promise. The Redeemer has come to Jerusalem, and he, he comes to, he's here this morning. Christ walks among the churches. And so with, with your eyes closed, I mean it, close your eyes, don't be peeking around. Let people be free to respond as the Lord leads them. With eyes closed, I wonder. Mine are the only eyes open here this morning because I'm the pastor and I, I reserve that, <laughs> that right. Is there anybody here that, that hears the Holy Spirit speaking to their heart and saying, this is something specifically you need to turn from and turn to him? If so, would you just slip your hand up for a second? I don't ever do this, but I'm curious. can put it up and then just put it right back down. You don't have to hold it up for long. Anybody else? Lord, you see not only hands being raised, you see deep inside the heart. You know our, our feelings and our thoughts and our intentions and, and you know you created us and you see all things and you know, you know what's really in our hearts and I pray, Lord, that you would come to these who've raised their hands and that you, Holy Spirit, would minister into the, to their life. That you would speak, yes, words of forgiveness and words of life and words of peace, but also words of action. They know what needs to be done. Lord, would you give them strength to do it? Would you help them be determined this day to be people who, who love you in word and in thought and in deed? Lord, if there's someone here this morning who, who has never known a day of life with you as their Savior and Lord, Lord, would you open their heart like, like we sang, like hearts unfold like flowers before you. Would you open their hearts to the truth of your word, to the truth of their condition apart from you, and to the truth of the good news that you can save them from their sins and in you they can have life that never ends? And would you give them the strength and the power to say yes to you? And if there's anyone in here that that describes, would you give them the courage to step forward and come to me? Not because I have the answers or am the answer, but because I can point them to the answers. I can point them to you and show them what it means to say yes and follow you. Lord, may this be a day of salvation and a day of repentance, a day of faith and life for us all. For your glory and honor. In Christ's name, amen. As Pastor Jeff and the worship team leads us, you respond as you feel led. If you want to come, I'll be right here on the front row. You can come to me and say, I want to pray. I'll come and pray with you. If you want to come and to this side and you want to be left alone, I will honor that. I will leave you alone. You can pray over here. But if you come here, I will come pray with you. Find someone in your life to share what the Lord is speaking to you about and do what he's telling you to do. Otherwise, you're just wasting time sitting in here listening this morning. He doesn't want people who love him in, in just words, but in action. Be a people of action this morning. Pastor Jeff.